We turn this evening again to 1 John chapter 5. This evening I begin reading at 1 John 5 verse 13. First John 5, verse 13, These things have I written unto you, that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If any man see his brother sin, a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for him, them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. I call your attention this evening to 1 John 5, verses 16 and 17. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, He shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as I pointed out last time, the apostle is wrapping up things, closing out his first epistle. And the theme of the epistle is the joy of living in God's fellowship, that which is ours by virtue of our union with Christ by a living and true faith. In our last sermon, we consider together verses 14 and 15, and the blessed place that we have in God's fellowship as that enables us to approach him in prayer with confidence. As our Heidelberg Catechism expresses in question and answer 120, our Father in Christ will much less deny us what we ask of him in true faith than our parents will refuse us earthly things. You know that you have eternal life. The life of Christ abides in you. 
you know that God is ready to receive you, to hear your prayers, to answer you. You have no reason to doubt that. The relationship in which we stand to Him is a relationship of love. And therefore of acceptance with Him. That's true not because of anything we bring. It's confidence which is focused entirely upon Him and upon who He is and what He has done in making us His children. He who has made us His own cannot cast us off. What a source of joy that is for us who live in the face of many struggles and trials. But now John expands upon that wonderful truth. He cannot talk about living in the effects of God's, about the effects of living in God's fellowship without also looking at our personal lives and our prayer life, calling attention to our relationships within the household of faith. After all, when Jesus taught John and the other disciples how to pray, he said, pray this way, our Father, our. We are to approach him in the consciousness of our place in his family, and therefore bearing not only our own personal expressions of gratitude and our own personal needs, but those of our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. In other words, when I'm living in fellowship with God, it's not just a matter of being in right relationship to Him, but also to my brothers and sisters who belong to Him. And this, as we have seen, is not only a central doctrine of the Bible, but of John's first epistle. It was summarized in the last verse of chapter 4, and this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. In our sojourn together, therefore, through this present wicked world, nothing is more important than that we maintain right relationships as the people of God. We must not look at ourselves merely as individual believers. We have to remember we are part of a family, of God's family. And our desire for that family must be that everyone in it is enjoying the full benefits of salvation. That must be our desire even though we realize that sin Mars relationships within that family. We have to come to grips with that in ourselves, but also with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have to deal rightly with the sins of our brothers and sisters. So John, once again inspired by the Holy Spirit, teaches us to pray for that brother who has sinned. He teaches us to pray in a particular way for him. And so we are compelled to consider this text under the theme, Praying for the Sinner. 
And as we look at the theme of this text, I ask you to consider with me three questions concerning the prayer of which John writes here. First of all, for whom? For whom are we praying? Secondly, in what way do we pray for him? And finally, to what end? The text calls us to a particular kind of prayer for the sinner. But don't overlook the fact that the sinner is defined here as a brother. So John speaks of a particular kind of prayer for a particular kind of a person. He's a sinner, as we all are sinners, but he's a brother, a brother who sins. Now, there are prayers to be offered for our neighbors as well. The Bible teaches that. Jesus even teaches us to pray for those who persecute us. But the inspired apostle here is speaking of Christian brothers, and that includes sisters, you understand. He's pointing to those who are fellow members of the household of faith, who by confession are members of God's family. And that's a significant emphasis here. After all, nothing is more important to family life than healthy relationships being maintained in the family. As a husband, for example, I have to be sure that I am walking in faithfulness to God in relationship to my wife. But my concern doesn't stop there. Besides my own condition, and my relationship with my wife, I have to be concerned with every member of my family and about our relationships together. And so it is with our place in the family of God. As members of Christ's bride, God's covenant family, we must be sure that we ourselves are standing in a right relationship to our Heavenly Father, but we must also have great concern about our family, God's family. It must be our heartfelt desire that every member of the family is standing in a right relationship with God and with each other and thus enjoying the fellowship, the blessedness of God's fellowship. And especially important is this because we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. We're a family walking together through what the Bible calls elsewhere a waste howling wilderness. And should one fall out into that wilderness, he couldn't survive. Not only is it necessary, in the words of Jude 20 and 21, to keep ourselves in the love of God by building up ourselves on our most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, but we must be equally concerned about each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's in that connection 
that John emphasizes the importance of prayer for a brother who falls into sin and who fails to live in the consciousness of his covenant relationship to God. Having already set forth the amazing truth that we may be certain of receiving what we ask of God when our petitions are in accordance with his will, he now makes this tremendous claim that if we earnestly pray for this brother who has fallen into a sin which is not unto death, we shall give him life. Now, apart from the fact that we have yet to get into the meaning of those words, you can readily understand this is an amazing statement showing the effectiveness of prayer for the brother, which prayer is pleasing to God. What, before we get into the content, what must first draw our attention is the particular approach underlying this teaching, that is, fitting with the overall theme of fellowship with God and therefore with one another, we must be in a right relationship to the brother. And we must realize that relationship in which we stand together. We're not just a group of individuals who hold some common views, who hold to the same doctrine, for example. The church is much more than that. We must realize that we are brothers and sisters of the same Father who are partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1 verse 4. We have a blood relationship, a relationship established and sealed by the blood of Jesus and therefore a relationship unmatched by any other relationship. We who are redeemed by the blood of Christ are one family. And for that reason, we must be concerned for each other, filled with a true love one for another. And for that reason, we also exercise a certain watchful care for each other's spiritual welfare. That's not to be busybodies in other men's matters. That's not to gossip about the brother the very opposite of expressing love. It is rather to reach out to him by seeking his spiritual good. And that comes to particular expression when that sin causes a breach in this family relationship. It's to fulfill our calling. Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, brethren, If a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We ought to be grieved by a brother's fall, by his sinful walk, not primarily because of offense caused us, 
not only because it brings God's name and cause into disrepute, but because our brother himself is in a wrong relationship to God and to us and is putting himself in a position of misery, of sorrow and unhappiness, of chastisement, and separation from the joy which is ours. Our love for the brother gives us concern for his own state and condition in relationship to us. So John tells us that we are to make him the object of our prayer. In what way? First of all, notice that John tells us that we shall ask for him before God. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. To ask is to request with urgency. The prayer for the sinner is to be a fervent prayer. You know what fervent prayer is when it comes to yourself. When you are in some desperate situation outside of your control, perhaps a situation where you even face death, you're in agony over prayer. Your prayer is characterized by an urgent plea imploring God in a sense of desperation. That's the kind of prayer you are to bring to God on behalf of your brother. For his deliverance from sin, you're praying for his salvation. Takes into account the seriousness of sin, the terrible effects of sin, the necessary consequences that must fall upon one who continues in sin. But there's something else in this word, ask. The word conveys the idea of making an urgent plea with the expectation of an answer. With this prayer, you expect God will hear and answer your petition. So we find that this prayer for the sinner is a prayer that brings expression to the wonderful truth of the church's unity. And again, I don't need to emphasize that doctrine because we've seen it throughout this epistle. We who live in fellowship with God live also in fellowship one with another. It's true that our unity is often distressed by sin. And particularly, as Scripture makes clear in James' epistle and in the Proverbs and in many places, by sins of the tongue, by evil speaking. But when we know the relationship in which we stand, our place in God's covenant, then we are also bound together by the unbreakable cord of love. Bound together by our love for God, first of all. 
but also bound together by our love one for another. That's a certain and necessary evidence and characteristic of true Christianity. In that spirit of love, we exercise a loving watchfulness among ourselves, and if a brother falls, we restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Remembering our own sinfulness and our own susceptibility to falling. The scriptures are full of such demonstrations of Christian fellowship and prayer one for another. So this asking of God on behalf of a brother who has fallen is an expression of our experiential knowledge of our place in the fellowship of the saints as one redeemed by Christ. We have fellowship, inseparable fellowship, because our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, verse 3. In the second place, when we stand before the question, in what way should we be praying for the sinner, it becomes evident that we must have a clear understanding of the nature of sin. And that's evident because the text puts a qualification on this prayer. We are to make such a request to God for our brother who sins a sin which is not unto death. And then we are told there is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Now you readily understand that those words are somewhat perplexing. What does this mean? A sin unto death and a sin not unto death. To answer That question, we may say in the first place, as we stand before the nature of sin as revealed in Scripture, we are taught clearly that all unrighteousness is sin. Righteousness, or that which is right, is that which is done according to the standard of right. And that presumes you understand there is such a standard of right and wrong. And sadly, we have to emphasize that in our day. There are many who would reject any standard of morality. And others would make their own standard. If there were no standards of right and wrong, society would be in total chaos. We're well on our way, too, aren't we? But modern culture would have man determine what is right and wrong. And because man's thinking changes over time, hand in hand with the development of sin in the world, what once were seen as unrighteous acts are now found acceptable. 
let's all understand there is an absolute standard of right and wrong right here in God's holy word. Anything which is contrary to the standard which God himself has established is unrighteousness, and all unrighteousness is sin. And sin, as you are aware, is literally a missing of the mark. The mark being God's glory, that which every one of us is called to magnify by word and deed. All unrighteousness is sin. That truth must be established, especially over against the false doctrines of perfectionism and antinomianism. Perfectionism is the error of those who say, I'm a Christian, I have the love of God in my heart, therefore I no longer sin. Now, it's only possible to take that position when you have such a low view, an unbiblical view of sin, that you view sin merely as violating the letter of the law. And that thinking not only characterized the Pharisees of Jesus' day, but made inroads into the early New Testament church. And you'll remember that John found it necessary to confront that error in the first chapter already when he said, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Antinomians, on the other hand, a word which speaks literally of being against the law, take the position we're unable to, unable to obey the law. The antinomian says, I'm a Christian, redeemed by Christ, and therefore my actions are irrelevant to salvation. The law doesn't speak to me because I can't keep the law anyway, nor do I have to because Christ has redeemed me from the curse of the law. And that position is characterized by confusion of some clear biblical truths and the setting forth of some very unbiblical propositions which we aren't going to take the time to analyze in depth here tonight. But it stands condemned by the apostle in chapter 2 verse 4, for example, where he wrote, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. All unrighteousness is sin. You mustn't call it mere weakness. mustn't refer to it simply as sickness, not merely an indiscretion. It's sin. Sin against God. That's the first established truth here in this text. And if you see your brother doing something that is wrong, that is sin, he needs your prayers. That's true because of the nature of sin. The nature of sin is that all sin in the life of the Christian interrupts the enjoyment of fellowship with God. 
And that's the second thing that stands out as a clear deduction from this text. All sin interrupts the life of fellowship with God. If a man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he that is God shall give him life. So it's obvious that by his sin, the brother has interrupted his life of fellowship with God. The normal Christian life, as the apostle has established throughout this epistle, is one of fellowship and communion with God. Whenever we sin, we bring a cloud, as it were, over our enjoyment of that fellowship. Our covenant communion with God is interrupted. And the relationship that we ought to be experiencing in his fellowship instead becomes a cold and abstract theory. You know that by your own experience, too. When we sin, when we walk in sin, it seems that God is far away. We even sing of that horrible experience in Psalm 73. To live apart from God is death. Our fellowship with God is so disturbed, so interrupted, we have no enjoyment of His favor. It's as if we are dead to Him. That's the nature of sin, the effects upon our consciousness. It comes between you and the one whom you, who loves you with an everlasting love so that you no longer experience that love. And so having known yourself the horror of sin and its effects in your own life and experience, you're deeply moved when you see a brother led astray pulled by the devil's devices out of the pathway of God's fellowship? In love, therefore, you pray for him. Fervently you pray for him. That's the Christian way. But recognizing that all unrighteousness is sin, and that sin is that which invariably makes a breach in the enjoyment of our fellowship with God, we come to find that there is a sin unto death, a sin for which we are not to pray. Would anyone not stand with fear and trembling here when the text tells us that it's possible for a man, a woman, a young person in the church to commit a sin for which there is no forgiveness, not here, not in the future, not when it comes to standing before the judgment seat of God. And yet the Bible teaches that there is a sin unto death, a sin for which we may not pray and which will not be forgiven 
And given the seriousness of such a doctrine, we must understand what the apostle refers to here. It might be easy to say, well, he's speaking of a sin that brings a person to the grave. He's speaking of the chronic drunkard who has so damaged his liver that he's paying for his sin with his life. He's talking about the one who kills himself. He's speaking of the fornicator, the homosexual dying of AIDS. But a careful consideration of the text shows clearly that he's not speaking of such cases. Because there are any number of sins which might slowly or speedily bring a person to the grave. But the text says there is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. In addition, it's evident that John's concern here is not the physical, but the spiritual. When he talks of giving life to the sinner, he, he's talking about spiritual life, the restoration of the joy of living in God's fellowship. And therefore, he's also speaking about spiritual death, everlasting death. This is not the only place in the Bible that speaks of a sin unto death. Jesus himself spoke of this sin in Matthew 12 when he said in verses 31 and 32, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven of men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. Neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Now understand the context here. This is not a sin committed by those who have no knowledge of God's word. This is not a sin committed by those who've never known the gospel. This is a sin that comes to expression in the church. This was the sin committed by the by some of the Pharisees. It was a sin committed by many of the church leaders in Jesus' day. This was a sin committed by the people who followed Jesus and learned what he was about and what he came to do and who he was, the Son of God, and with clear sight and a reasoned heart attributed the works of Christ through the Spirit to the devil. That was the sin against the Holy Spirit. It's a blatant, knowledgeable, willful rejection of the teaching of the Holy Spirit concerning Christ's Godhead and his work. To turn again to John's epistle, the sin unto death is the embracing of that spirit of Antichrist 
which rejects Christ and his word and his work, even after having received the knowledge of the truth. He had described some of them in the second chapter, verse 19, immediately after referring to the perilous times in which we now live, the times of many antichrists. And this description, remember, is not all inclusive of those who have left the church or left our churches to go to another church, but of those who have become antichrists. John writes in chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Of such blatant, knowledgeable, willful rejection of the teaching of the Holy Spirit concerning Christ and his work, the sin of being anti-Christ. The text tells us, I do not say that you shall pray for it. But there is a sin not unto death. And it's important also for our own conscience sake that we face the question negatively, who are the people who are not guilty of the sin unto death? They may have committed the most grievous sins. We are shown examples by the multitudes in Scripture of men and women, children of God, who committed terrible sins, grievous sins, sins with devastating consequences, and yet whom God loved and whom Christ redeemed and sanctified. In 1 Corinthians 9, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, The Apostle Paul writes to the congregation where numerous terrible sins had been committed. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. But I assure you, among those who have not committed the sin unto death are some who who are afraid that they have. 
the blatant, willful sin unto death is committed by the arrogant and self-satisfied who would sit in judgment over God himself and his works, not by the one who grieves over the possibility of having committed the unforgivable sin. In addition, to be assailed by doubts, to feel terribly unworthy of being a Christian, even to have fallen into a terrible sin, is not to have committed the sin unto death. How many of us have not committed many, even innumerable, willful, sin, presumptuous sin. We plead with the psalmist, sins of youth remember not. Our conscience is plagued by those sins. Beloved, when you grieve over your sin, that's a sure indication of the Spirit's irresistible work drawing you to himself. Innumerable sins in our lives are willful, presumptuous sin. And that's not to deny the seriousness of those sins. Christ had to die for them. And the very plague upon our conscience indicates the seriousness of them. These remarks are, are simply to magnify the depths of the mercies of Christ, who says to you tonight, all manner of sin shall be forgiven you for Jesus' sake. Those guilty of the sin unto death are those who, having once received the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and having known the way of righteousness, which is by faith alone, return to the pollutions of the world, having rejected the gospel, and who walk in impenitence. To put it another way, why is such a sin a sin unto death? To sin unto death because there's never repentance in the heart of the person who commits that sin. Repentance for that person is impossible. So don't misunderstand the text. We must never suppose that there are those who commit this sin and then with true sorrow and repentance plead with God only to find God saying to them, Depart from me. Christ said in John 6, verse 37, He that cometh to me I shall in no wise cast out. But there is no repentance in the one who commits the sin unto death. And for that, therefore, we do not pray. 
But for every other sin, we are to beseech God for repentance and forgiveness. And that prayer is not just for ourselves, it's for the brother who has sinned. Mind you, with love and compassion, with heartfelt concern and urgency, we not only can pray for him, we must pray for him. Expressing our love not only for God, but for the brother. Fellow member of the same household of faith, we pray. To what end? That prayer is answered. It's answered in a wonderful way. A way in which God's grace is magnified. A way in which Christ's work is exalted. A way in which the Holy Spirit's work is revealed all to the glory of God our Father. For the one who asks, this prayer is answered. God gives to those who ask. He shall ask, and God shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. Notice once again the, the close relationship between you who ask and the brother for whom you've been pleading with God. God gives life. He restores in the way of repentance and faith the one who was caught in the snares of sin. But you receive that answer as God giving life to you. What a blessing to be used for the restoration of a wayward brother to renewed fellowship with Christ, renewed fellowship with the body of Christ. What a humbling experience to see God answer your prayers in such a way. To pray for your brother, the sinner. To see your prayer come to this end is to receive, as it were, a precious gift from God himself. You realize, don't you, that repentance is the gift of God. You understand, don't you, even from your own experience, that the only person who ever repents is a person to whom God gave that repentance? What a wonder to Peter's eyes when Peter saw God save those whom Peter thought would never be saved. You remember when Cornelius sent his servants to Peter? God said in that vision to Peter, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. All manner of unclean beasts. God directed him to the house of a Gentile. And his response finally could only be this. 
Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. It's amazing that. Amazing to him. But notice that. God gave repentance unto life. So if you repent, get on your knees and thank God for the wonder work of His grace. And when you see your brother restored to life again, get on your knees and thank God for the wonder work of His grace in Christ and the work of His Holy Spirit. And if God forgives every sin, every sin but that one sin unto death, It's our calling to forgive too. Every despicable sin, every sin that causes such a tragic breach in the fellowship of the saints, and particularly in the sinner's consciousness of God's fellowship. Such restoration to the full life of fellowship with God will bring joy unspeakable and full of glory as we look upon him who alone forgives us and continues to forgive and to heal our backsliding. That gospel I proclaim with the apostle, as he said in the third verse of this epistle, that ye may also have fellowship with us and truly Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Gracious Father, as those who have known the wonder of thy forgiveness, we plead for those yet ensnared in sin. And we plead that thou wilt bring to repentance, true repentance, clearly evident to thee and to us. And that thou wilt by faith and in that way of repentance restore to thy fellowship the enjoyment of thy fellowship and to the enjoyment of the fellowship of the body of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.